0: Sort of extraordinary endurance in suffering among the early Protestants in France, the Huguenots. let me just read you an extract from a historian writing about the time it 's quite a long um, little extract, but I think it will open up something of what 's going on in these verses here for this morning in the mid eighteenth century in southern France, a girl named Marie Durand was brought before the authorities charged with the Huguenot heresy. That is, in Catholic France, she was a Protestant. She was 15 years old. She was bright, attractive, marriageable, and she was asked to renounce her faith. She was not asked to commit, to, to commit an, an immoral act, to become a criminal, or even to change the day-to-day quality of her behavior. She was only asked to renounce her faith. No more, no less. He continues, together with 30 other women, she did not comply. And she was put into a tower by the sea for 38 years. And instead of the hated word, I renounce, she, together with the fellow martyrs, scratched on the wall of the prison tower the single word, resist. And even today, tourists visit and they gape at the, the wall not understanding what they read, the historian continues, I think very pertinently. He says, We cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and the summer into autumn and to feel the slow systemic changes within one's flesh, the drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of the joints, the slow deterioration of the senses... To feel all of this and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation that has no capacity to wait and to endure. 38 years. I find that story hugely challenging. In 2 Timothy terms from last week, she strikes me as a soldier, athlete, a farmer one who follows the example of Paul, one who follows the example of Jesus, one who endures, who is supernaturally strong, remember 2 verse 1, in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. But if you were here last week, do you remember, was Paul's challenge to us. (coughs) Remember the problem? Remember the problem in 2 Timothy? Remember what's going on? There's an urgency, as he writes, because the church in Ephesus is facing opposition on two fronts. From the outside, you've got Alexander the metal worker and people trying to squish the gospel, opposing Paul and people after him. And then inside, you've got false teaching. We'll hear much more about that from Andy next week. But there's an urgency in the church, and there's an urgency with Paul as well, because he's in prison, and he's probably on the way out. For him, he's pretty sure this is it. This is game over. And so he urges Timothy to take on the baton of ministry and to pass it on to others. And while he's got every right to be disheartened and down, he he isn't. He's lonely, he's vulnerable, he's human, he's been deserted by some, but but he's not drowning in the despair of the letter. And so, Timothy, will you guard the gospel? Will you pass it on to the next generation? Will you let the unchained word of God do its work in the world? But then right in the middle we get this little pithy saying. It's probably a summary or a conclusion of the first chunk of the letter. The bits we're going to focus in on, 11 to 13, are four little couplets that kind of challenge and encourage us. But I think as well help Timothy to see what is going on in Ephesus. It was probably a creed or an early hymn. And it's urging Timothy, urging the Christians in Ephesus to keep going in the midst of the mess. Don't look back. Don't give up. Keep strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read the verses again. And as Daniel did, I'm going to read from 8, because I think 8 to 10 is kind of the introduction that lead us into 11 to 13. Let me read them again to us. We thought about them last week. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Why is it that Timothy needs this rather stark warning? Why do we think? Well, putting the pieces together, we've seen Timothy has something of a tendency towards timidity. He he needs to be told to be bold. But Ephesian culture as well, as far as we can tell, was not unlike our culture in Oxford. It was an important, prosperous, affluent city in the Roman province of Asia. It was prosperous, it was a trading centre, there were boats and ports, there were roads coming inland. It was a place of money, it was a place of comfort, it was a place of distractions. It was just the kind of place where it's very easy to forget to live by faith. And very easy to, to forget the call to suffer and to not bother enduring. I take it these are verses for people like us who feel a bit like Timothy, who know what it means to be timid. And for people who enjoy living in a culture of comfort. And so what we'll do as we go through from 11 to 13 is take each of these little four couplets in turn and show why they matter to us and how they fit into the wider letter as well. And I want to say, I think if we forget any of them, then we're on dangerous ground as we live the Christian life. So our first one then. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And in a prosperous city, in a culture of comforts, the idea of dying with Christ not only sounds pretty alien, it sounds positively unattractive. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, and all this just sounds a bit weird and a bit unappealing. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian, and if you're honest, this all just sounds a bit zealous, a bit keen, a bit kind of all in. And really, I'd just like to fit in with those around me, if I'm honest. You feel the pressure not to take things quite so seriously. You feel the pressure just to tone things down a bit. And I'm not sure, though, that works. I don't think we can just die with him a bit. And anyway, what does it mean to die with Christ? It means that we follow him completely. It means that we undergo a death and your self, your old self, is no more. It is gone now. You are dead in Christ. Have a listen to what Jesus says on this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so it means that his he died on the cross, then the old you died with him. To die with Christ means that the old Dan Steele is now dead and gone. The old Dan Steele no longer calls the shots. The old Dan Steele is not in charge the old Dan still is not here anymore, that there's a completely new agenda in our lives now. As he died on the Friday, so you died with him. But as he was raised again on the Sunday, so you were raised with him. Second half of the verse, we will also live with him. I think that's life now that goes on forever. Or again, remember verse 8, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. And of course it feels counter-cultural, and of course we feel weird thinking this kind of stuff, because it is. Because the basic default definition of life that most of us are working from is not this definition of where we find life. Our default definition of life is completely faulty. Whether we call ourselves Christians or whether we don't call ourselves Christians... So, if you look up life in in the dictionary of your mind, what's there? What's your knee jerk reaction? How do you define what life is? What does it mean that you are alive? I guess practically, for most of us, it's something to do with happiness. Audrey Hepburn said the most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. Okay, well, how do we think we'll be most happy? For most people in Oxford, I would say it's to do with stuff or money or popularity or grades or experiences or success or how we look to other people and what they think of us, the kind of car that we drive, the postcode that we have, the kind of family that we have, the quality of our friends. And those things are all fine. Those things are good. But if they are the default definition for what we're using in terms of life, if they are where we go for life and joy and value and worth and and salvation, ultimately we'll always be disappointed. The Bible is very clear on this. True life is only ever found in Jesus knowing and being known by the God who made you. Has it ever occurred to you that we can have so much and we can fill our lives with so much and we can squeeze all we can out of it to be so happy and yet still not be happy? Still not really have life? And then sometimes you meet some people, perhaps from around the world, who have nothing, absolutely nothing. Just hardships, just suffering but they are truly joyful because they have real life. Because their, their definition of life is God's definition of life. Because they are in Christ. They have Jesus. I want to say, if you're here this morning and you're kind of feeling the pressure to perform, maybe your, your first years at university university, Maybe you just know that in the workplace. I want to say work hard and be thankful and do the best with the gifts that God has given you. But know that true life is not found in achievement. It's not found in performance. It's found in Jesus. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And so as you trust Christ, it's as if you are included in his work on the cross. His death is your death. The forgiveness he won is for you. The blessings that he achieved as he died in your place are yours. And they are yours forever. And you know, when we actually believe that, when we actually believe it, because it's so easy, isn't it, to go back to the old definition of life. We do it all the time. But when we actually believe that true life is found in Christ, then life and living, it seems to me, just is a little bit simpler. And if you're someone who's never made the decision to follow and to trust Jesus, if, if you've not, you you can't say that you have died with Him and been raised anew, then let me urge you do that today. Because it's only there that you'll find life. And yet when I say life, please don't think ease. Paul continues, secondly, we're called to endure for him. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you see that is present endurance now for future reigning with him then. And just as verse 11 wasn't optional, to be a Christian is to be one who dies to self, so also to be a Christian, verse 12, is to be one who needs to endure. We are called to endure. And we say, but for 38 years, locked in a prison cell? How do you do that? I think I can endure for a bit, but I'm just not sure about that kind of endurance. How do we do that? I take it we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, the one who endured for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we are to be like him and endure as he does. We look at the cross and we have an example, but it's more than that. Because he endured the cross, so we are empowered, we are enabled to endure. You see, we don't stoically endure to make God happy with us, but he's already happy with us. His son has lovingly gone before us. His Holy Spirit has been poured out to give us power, love, self-discipline. So we are enabled to endure for him. His endurance enables our endurance. We know that we're loved and safe and secure. And it's like Paul, verse 10, we saw it last week. Timothy, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We endure when we don't focus on what we're going through, but we focus on why we're going through it. We endure when we focus on what is to come. You can, you can eat Brussels sprouts now if you know that they'll, they'll do you some good and you'll get ice cream for pudding. To endure is to live the normal Christian life. To endure is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. To endure is to be enabled by Jesus. And so Paul says, Timothy, will you stand with me? Will you endure? Will you follow Jesus? And if you do endure, then he says we will reign What does that mean? Well, Jesus says, if we keep going in this life, we will be rewarded in the next. Let me read it to you. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Do you see the brilliant news is this world is not all there is. This is not it, says Jesus. And when he returns... And when the new heavens and the new earth come in, well, those who have followed and endured and stewarded well, I take it they will have more opportunity to do that. Endurance now means reigning then. It means serving with him then. But here's my problem. My problem is I want to have my cake and eat it. I don't want endurance now. I want glory now and glory then. Someone said, the person who only sticks with Christianity as long as things are going his or her way is a stranger to the cross. Do you see what the problem is? There is no cross, no crown, no endurance, no reigning. And what happens when human disobedience comes into the equation? For Timothy, as he looks around the church in Ephesus and he sees the gangrene, people being ripped apart, this faith shipwrecking individuals destroying the church, what happens to people who turn their back on the apostolic gospel? People who turn their back on God? Well, it's very stark. If we disown him, he will disown us. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do you see, the decisions that we make matter. We're not robots. Disowning him here, I think, is not just a a temporary lapse, a kind of goofing up and keeping your mouth shut when you ought not to have It's deserting, it's wandering off from the life of the gospel. I know that there are people in this room who are tempted to do that at times. But you see, if you disown him, the chilling truth finally is that he will disown you. If you walk out on him forever, he will let you do that. That is a warning and an explanation for Timothy. As he looks around and sees those running from Paul and running from the apostolic gospel, he warns him and he warns us. This is meant to shock us. This is meant to make us feel uncomfortable. God sometimes uses these kinds of warnings to keep us trusting him. It's for when we're considering, is it worth it? Is it worth living for Jesus? Really? It's for when the life that our friends are living looks so alluring and tempting and attractive and so much better and we look at our lives and they just don't really match up. It's for when Oxford looms over us, large in our minds, and the call of the world is loud and enticing and we want to sit on the fence and we want to ride two bikes and we want to have a feet in both camps And Paul says, be warned. Friends, be warned. Know that if you disown him, he will disown us. Whatever's enticing you, whatever's tempting you, please follow Jesus instead. Please keep following Jesus instead. Please don't disown him. God's not the totalitarian tyrant who forces us to follow him, who forces us to trust him. And if we don't, he will ultimately respect that and hold us to that decision. Each and every morning, daily die to self. Daily follow him. Daily endure. If we disown him, he'll disown us. And then finally, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And it turns out this verse is far more complicated than I first thought. Um, And different people say different things and the commentators are divided, which always makes for a fun time. Always makes for a good week. It turns out there are three options for what this verse, verse 13, might mean, all of which are plausible, all of which work grammatically, all of which work in the context of 2 Timothy. So I'm going to tell you what the three are, then I'm going to explain them, and I'm going to say where I end up. So the first option, if we are faithless, he is faithful, that is we doubt and we struggle, but he is kind and he won't let us go. First option. Second option, we are faithless, he is faithful. That is, we are unbelieving and we have wandered off. And so he is faithful in that he is consistent with himself and he faithfully judges those who are faithless. Second option. The third one is this. That is, when we look around and we see the mess of what is going on, when we see people wandering off, then we can be assured that his plan is still working. This is still the plan. God is still active. So three good options. And I have to say, this has got under my skin this week. Some of you will know that. I think it it doesn't say what I thought it said. Um, I've always taken the first option, that is, this versus an encouragement. This is optimistic. God is faithful despite our worries and our anxieties. It's, it's written for people like us who are a bit like Timothy, who, who wobble and are faithless and are doubters and who struggle to keep going. And so we are comforted because as Paul says, Timothy, I pass the baton on to you. Well, if you're faithless, he is faithful. He will keep you. He can't disown himself, be encouraged. It does not depend on you, Timothy. And you can be encouraged because that is true. And that is true in the letter. We've seen that already. Timothy is not about you, this is his mission, his word is not changed. God will look after you, he will equip you. But then there's the pessimistic option. And I think the tr- the structure of the trustworthy saying helps with this. So do you see the first two little couplets go with the second two little couplets? That is, if we die with him and if we endure with him, those two go together. And if we live with him and if we reign with him, those two go together. That's the first half. Which means the second half, if we disown him and if we are faithless, those two go together. Which then also means that as he disowns us and he is faithful, then those two also go together. Does that make rough sense? A few nods. So his faithfulness then is seen in his justice, his judgment. He doesn't say for those who don't trust the gospel, oh, all right, come on then anyway. Come on back. We will see next week people like Hymenaeus and Philetus will be disowned because God is faithful to his promises and he will judge. Verse 13 is a warning. God is truly good and just and right. And for him to be faithful here, Could that mean that he judges those who are disobedient, who wander off? And that is also true. And that is into Timothy. So there's the optimistic option. Timothy, if you're faithless, God is faithful, it'll be all right. There's the pessimistic option. Timothy, if you're faithless, disobedient, unbelieving, God is faithful and he will judge. But then there's a third option. And I wonder if this is perhaps more helpful And that is this, Timothy, as you see Hymenaeus and Philetus wandering off, and as you see Paul in prison, and as you see this church filled with gangrene, and as you pull your hair out and wrestle with the reality of the hardships of handing on ministry, and the pressures of of living for Jesus every day in Ephesus, as you are faithless and wobbly when you see what is going on all around you, then you can know God is still faithful. He is still in charge. This is still the plan. This is the way it was meant to be. His word is not changed. God is faithful despite the mess. Isn't that encouraging as we watch the news and you see the mess of the world? As you see churches being boarded up and shut around the country? As you scratch your head and think, Is this really God's plan? This wasn't the way it was meant to be. This wasn't how I envisaged things. Why is he letting this happen? Why am I going through this mess? Well, when we are faithless, and perhaps we doubt him, then know that he is faithful and he is good. Because, you see, supposing that under persecution, Christians are made to recant. Suppose that our girl at the start had caved in under pressure and she had renounced her faith. Suppose she hadn't endured. Would that have made any difference to Jesus being king? No. The truth is that Jesus is Lord. He, He cannot renounce himself. He cannot disown himself. He is faithful to himself. And all around the world, as people seek to stamp out the Christian faith, that they're doomed to failure because whatever they can do, they cannot dethrone Jesus. He is still in charge. And as we finish this little trustworthy saying, which frankly is challenging, where are we to look because the tendency we have is to, to clench our fists and, and grit our teeth and dig deep and get on with it and say, 38 years, I'm up for that. But, but do you remember 2 verse 1? As Tom taught the children as well, the start of this section, how are we to be strong? How do we endure? We're strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Look to him for the strength for each day, for endurance. Look to his mercies new every morning as you daily die to self. As you endure in the strength that he provides, as you endure for the tasks that he has given you, be strong, but be strong in his grace. Let's pray. Father, we confess before you these are hard verses. And so we pray that we might hear what you want us to hear. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we might daily die with you and so live with you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we might endure for you as you do, empowered by you, and so one day reign with you when you return. And we pray that we might trust you each day so that we never disown you and wander off. And we pray that when we are faithless, whatever that quite looks like, we would look to your faithfulness and your goodness and your plan at work. I thank you that you make us strong. We say to you, we can't do this on our own. Help us to be strong in your grace. Forgive us when we try and scurry off and do things in our own strength. But thank you that there's more than enough grace for us each day. Thank you that all we have is Christ and that Christ is enough. In his name we pray. Amen.